0: and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground But when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days, he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on straight street and asked for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In the vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports from this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name but the lord said to ananias go this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the gentiles and the kings and to the people of israel i will show him how much he must suffer for my name then ananias went to the house and entered it placing his hands on saul he said brother saul the lord jesus Who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again he got up and was baptized and after taking some food he regained his strength this is the word of the Lord
1: Thank you very much, uh, Mimi, and good afternoon, everyone. Could I add my welcome to that of Suzanne's, if I, if I haven't met you before, uh, my name's Alex. Uh, please do keep that Bible reading open in uh, the Connect Bulletin so you can follow along with uh, what I've got to say. Hello as well to those who are joining us on our live stream. Uh, let me pray for us, that God would guide us as we look at his word. Oh Lord God, we recognize that we are without you, we are unable even to please you. So would you guide the thoughts of our hearts by your Holy Spirit? Would you help us to have ears that hear your word, eyes that see your goodness, and a faith that receives Jesus as our Lord and Saviour and seeks to follow him in all things. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Um, In the famous Welsh preacher Martin lloyd Jones's biography, um, there is a story about a man named Staffordshire Bill. Um, Staffordshire Bill lived uh, in to his, well into his 70s and in his town he didn't have a great reputation. He was known as being a drunk, abusive and a very divisive type of person, profane. When people saw him they tended to walk the other direction. Uh, One night as Bill settled into his local pub to drink himself into oblivion like he normally did, he overheard a conversation at a table nearby, two men speaking about the local church and one man saying, I went there tonight and the preacher said that there is hope for everybody, everybody can have hope. Now Bill didn't hear the rest of the conversation but instead completely focused on and sober, he said to himself, well, if there is hope for everybody, then that means there must be hope for me. I'm going to go to that church next Sunday night and listen to what that preacher has to say. Now, on the first two Sundays, um, he went to the church but lost his nerve and didn't go in. But something began to happen in him. Um, over the course of those few weeks, he, he, he wasn't turning to alcohol. To drown his sorrows like he normally did. God was beginning to do a work in him. But then on the third Sunday, again he turned up to the doors of that church and just as he hesitated about going in, someone saw him and said, hello Bill, is that you? Why don't you come in and and, and sit with me? And that night, the gospel became real to Bill. Now, as he was leaving the church that evening with his companion, his companion introduced him to the pastor's wife, Mrs. Jones, this is Staffordshire Bill. And Mrs. Jones would later say, at that name, that man winced like he'd been hit with a sudden blow. He said, oh no, no, oh no, he replied, that's a bad old name for a bad old man. My name is William Thomas now. Now, when the gospel enters into your heart and you believe it, you become absolutely new. Jesus makes you into a new person. Over the centuries, Christians have called that experience conversion. Now, as you know, we're in a series looking at the book of Acts, and we've called this series The Spreading Flame, because this book is all about how the spark of the gospel becomes a flame, and that flame spreads we've seen that it's about the gospel going to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And here, in this passage today, we see probably one of the most famous stories of conversion ever. The story of how Saul converted from Judaism to Christianity. Saul, who's also called the Apostle Paul. And by the way, if occasionally I get those names back and forth, you'll you'll know the reason why. Now, conversion is often... um, an unsettling topic. It's unsettling for people outside the church, because sometimes people think that conversion means you're getting too serious about Jesus, that, that your religion is becoming too serious, too demanding, too exclusive, too strong, therefore you just need to tone it down a little bit. After all, we, we, we don't really need conversion to, to, to relate to God, do we? Conversion is an optional thing, you don't need to take it up. It's unsettling for people outside the church. But conversion is also sometimes an unsettling topic for people inside the church. You might say to yourself, well I haven't had one of those dramatic Damascus Road experiences, how do I, how do I know whether I'm really converted? Conversion can be an unsettling experience. Now the thing is, conversion experiences in the New Testament are so diverse, they're so very different. Yes, there are some people who have dramatic and sudden conversion experiences, but for many, their conversion is slow and, and, and very gradual. There are no common pattern for co- conversion experiences for everyone, but there are common features that should be seen in everyone including, we see, in Saul. And so as we look at this passage, we'll see three things. Uh, The need for conversion, the cause for conversion, and then thirdly, the consequences for conversion. Verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for the letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Um, This is not the first time we've met Saul. Saul. We met him at the end of Acts chapter 7. He was one of the witnesses to Stephen's trial and execution. And we met him at the beginning of chapter 8. He was one of the chief instigators of the persecution of Christians. Now, you can imagine Saul, he has absolute dedication to wipe out this young Christian movement. You can imagine him maybe like one of those characters in a war film that you've seen. He goes from house to house, grabbing people, dragging them off, arresting them, putting them into prison. He's like an ancient version of the Terminator. You know, he's unstoppable. If people manage to escape, he gives you no peace. He tracks them down, pursues them, goes off to faraway places. He hears that some of the Christians have gone from Jerusalem to Damascus. That's 240 kilometers away, and yet he still follows them. He has letters to arrest them. He's got like a license to kill. And you might be left thinking, why is Saul Saul so determined? I mean, why can't he let these Christians go? They're doing no harm, right? Why is he so determined? Well, for Saul, it's all about Jesus. Remember, Saul was a Pharisee, uh, brought up, likely in Jerusalem, taught by one of the most renowned rabbis at the time, a man named Gamaliel. Saul was really strict. He was really very religious and moral. And for him, the notion of a crucified Messiah was a contradiction in terms. Messiahs don't get crucified. Messiahs rule, they conquer, they triumph. In the Old Testament, there was a law that said anyone who was hung on a tree was cursed by God. And because Jesus was crucified, therefore that must mean he was cursed by God. He must have done something to deserve that kind of death. Therefore, to insist that this Jesus was a Messiah is not only stupid, it's blasphemous. Worse, it can cause an in, a political insurrection and the Romans could come down hard on everyone. Now, the trouble was this young Christian movement was growing. This movement was becoming popular and it needed to be stopped. What was needed was someone with conviction and courage and the strength to do something about it. What was needed was someone like... Saul, to do something about it. Now often people think that uh, conversion is just about getting religious, you know, making moral self-improvements in your life, following the religious laws, um, turning up to church and, and things like that. Maybe you remember in John chapter 3, Jesus was having a conversation with Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, he was a very religious guy and he was also very interested in Jesus. And you might think that Jesus would say to him, look, Nicodemus, you're, you're a really nice guy. You know your Bible well, you're moral, you're ethical, you're religious, but there's only one or two things that you need to, to have a complete picture. Does Jesus say that to Nicodemus? Well, no, he doesn't say that. He says to him, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. Now, to be born again is, is a way of speaking about conversion. Conversion. It's like Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, yes, you're very nice, you're very religious, but what you most need is to be radically converted. And that's the same thing with Saul. Saul was like Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a very religious, a very moral guy. Saul wasn't persecuting Christians because he didn't believe in God. No, Saul was persecuting Christians because he thought he was serving God. In other words... The Christian call to conversion is not a call to morality and religion. In fact, it's a challenge to morality and religion. It's especially a call to those people who already think of themselves as moral and religious. Why? Well, the Bible says that humanity and and, and the problem, the problem with humanity and, and the world is that we have a tendency to place ourselves in the position of God. We put ourselves in the place of God. And there are two ways in which we can put ourselves in the place of God. There are two ways in which we can make ourselves our own saviour and Lord. One is to break all the moral rules, you know, to live your life the way you want to live. But the other way is to, to keep all the moral rules. One way is to say, I'm going to live my life the way I want. The other way is to say, I'm going to follow all the rules, Therefore, God owes me. I can earn God's favour. You know, one way is the life of selfishness and immorality. The other way is the life of self-sufficiency, spiritual pride. But either way, you're putting yourself in the very centre. You're putting yourself in in control. It's it's all about you. Now, the great danger for religious people is that they actually don't recognise the danger that they're in. Um, It's harder for them to see their sense of spiritual entitlement and their spiritual brokenness. They actually think they're all right with God. They can't can't see the danger that they're in because they they don't know that they've made themselves their own saviour and Lord. Look, here's the test. If you went up to someone and said, you really need to be converted, and they said to you, what, what? Me? Converted, what are you you talking about? I've got things worked out. You know, I might not be perfect, but I'm I'm more functional, I'm more ethical, I'm more moral. I treat people better than most other people do. What do you mean I need to be converted? That person is spiritually self-sufficient. They haven't recognized their need for God. They're, they're, They're blind to the danger that they're in. They don't know their deep spiritual need. And that was Saul's situation. That was his deep spiritual need for conversion. So we see the need for conversion, but then secondly, we see the cause for conversion. Saul is on his way to Damascus to seize Christians, but on his way to Damascus, he's instead seized by Jesus. Verse 3, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Um, On his way to Damascus, Saul is literally knocked to the ground. He sees this blinding light, he hears this voice. Later on, we're told that he he is blinded for three days and, and, and he doesn't eat or drink anything. For Saul, this is an overwhelming experience. But the thing is, On the way to Damascus, he wasn't searching for God, he wasn't looking for God. Instead, God found him. Um, I I use this, uh, every day I use this daily Bible reading devotional called, For the Love of God. And when you get to this passage in Acts chapter 9, Don Carson, the author, tries to reconstruct what might have been going on in Saul's mind at this moment. On the Damascus Road and and then three days afterwards. Remember, as a Pharisee, Saul could not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Um, He had rejected the idea because the Messiah is is supposed to be blessed by God, not cursed by God. And Jesus was humiliated and abandoned and crucified. Messiah's rule, they're not rejected. But when Saul hears that voice from, from heaven, saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? When he realizes that's Jesus speaking, it changes everything completely about him. Don Carson says that from that moment onwards, Saul's theology, his whole understanding of God and the Bible and salvation would have been utterly changed by his confrontation with the risen and glorified Jesus. When Saul meets Jesus, when he realises Jesus is not dead but risen, here's what Saul might have been thinking. He might have been thinking, hang on, wait a minute, Jesus is risen, I've I've just seen Him. That means that Jesus is not cursed by God, He must be blessed by God. That means that what was happening on the cross was not Jesus getting punished for His own sins, otherwise... He would not have been risen from the dead. Something else must have been happening on the cross. It must mean that Jesus was paying for someone else's sins. It must mean that He was cursed and abandoned by God for the sins of others. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus is God's vindication of Jesus. That Jesus really is who he claimed to be. He really is the Messiah and the Savior. And the way that he saves his people is by going to the cross and dying for their sins. He took the curse. He took the punishment that his sins deserved. That cascade of understanding is showering down on, on Saul. And he recognizes that resurrection has vindicated Jesus. And so from that vantage point, all of a sudden, everything looks completely different the resurrection is the key that unlocks everything else. And you can imagine Saul over those subsequent days, as he's thinking and praying and processing how he's just seen the risen Lord Jesus, he's looking back on the Old Testament and Saul, because he's such a brainiac, he's got such a colossal intellect, he probably has the Old Testament stored away in his brain there for easy access, All of a sudden, he's looking at it all completely differently. It's all new. It's all coming together in a new way. So, for example, he's accessing the prophet Isaiah. He's thinking about that book, how at the beginning of the book, Isaiah talks about this strong king. But then at the end of the book, how he talks about a a suffering servant. How can those two figures be the same unless that strong king is the one who suffers for his people? Or another example, he's thinking about the whole sacrificial system in the Old Testament. How is it possible for the blood of bulls and goats and lambs to atone for sins? For centuries, God's people had celebrated the Passover by sacrificing a lamb, but how can a a lamb make your sins forgiven? Unless the Lamb of God is actually a person whose death takes away the sins of his people. And then there are all the promises that exist in the Old Testament. God's promise, for instance, to King David, that upon his throne would come one of his descendants who would rule forever, whose kingdom would never end. How is that possible for one person to rule forever? Or the promises to Abraham that God said to him, through your offspring, through your seed, through one person will come someone who will bless the nations. How is it possible for, for one person to bless the whole world? Once Saul recognized that Jesus had been crucified and resurrected and glorified, that was was the, the key that unlocked everything for him. He recognized that Jesus had been vindicated by God and therefore was really the Messiah and everything was about him. You're not in a relationship with God through your performance. You're not in a relationship with God through your moral correctedness, you're through, 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 through uh, earning your own righteousness. It's completely all a gift from God. Nothing that you can earn, you're given a righteousness that is foreign to yourself. It's Jesus' righteousness. It's all a gift from God. Look, let me just trace out a little bit more the implications of this, this for a moment. Saul discovered that salvation is entirely from God. It's all a gift from God. But he also realized that his conversion is a gift from God. It's entirely through God's grace. Saul realized he couldn't claim credit for any of it. And we can't claim credit for any of it. We can't claim credit for any forward step we make towards God at all. He's the cause of it all. Later on in Acts chapter 26, Paul is talking about his conversion, that Damascus Road experience. And he reveals a few extra things that were said to him on that road. He says, we all fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? Now, goads are like a a stick with with a sharp, pointy end. Shepherds use it. To, to prod sheep, to get them to go in the right direction. You know, sheep are, are nice-looking animals, they're cute, but they're incredibly stupid. <laughs> they, they need guidance and direction because they need help to find the right food. They need help to avoid danger because they're stupid animals. And occasionally, a, a shepherd will will goad a sheep. They'll, they'll point the sheep with this stick, this shark stick. They'll herd it to get it in the right direction. The implication of this is... Jesus has been goading Saul. He's been prodding him, poking him, even sometimes hurting him, using circumstances to get get him going in the right direction. One of those goads could have been Stephen. Remember, Saul had witnessed the trial and execution of Stephen. He had heard Stephen explain the gospel. He had heard Stephen pray for the crowd as they're stoning him to death. He had seen Stephen's calmness, his confidence, his poise, his peace as he's dying. And maybe after he'd seen all that, reflecting upon it, he'd asked himself, how could this guy have that peace? How could he pray for those people who are killing him? Where does he get that confidence and that poise in God? One of the goads could have been Stephen, but another goad could have been Paul's, or Saul's, own self-doubts. He says in Romans chapter seven that he would not have known what coveting was unless the commandments had revealed it to him. Do you remember the tenth commandment? You shall not covet your neighbor's spouse, your neighbor's house, your neighbor's possessions. Saul says, "I, I didn't really know the meaning of covetousness until I heard it in the commandment." In other words, the, the laws don't just show you how you should obey. The laws also reveal to you how you disobey. And Saul began to have all these doubts once he had seen the commandments that he could actually obey them fully. There were these goads in Saul's life, Stephen, these spiritual doubts, and so on. But Saul's problem, according to Jesus, was he'd been kicking against these goads. He'd been resisting them. He hadn't been paying attention to them. He'd been ignoring them. And so on that road to Damascus, Jesus seized him he took hold of him now subjectively speaking when you look back on your own conversion you feel as though hey i'm 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 searching i'm choosing i'm i'm going after god but then afterwards you might look back on it and and you might look back and 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 see all the circumstances and the conversations and the people and recognize it was actually god who was leading you towards him He was goading you. He was using all these things, all these circumstances and conversations and people, even hurtful situations, difficult times, in order to goad you to get in the right direction. And when you begin to see that, you you might say to yourself, I, I thought I was searching for God, but it turns out, when I look back, I now realize I was searching because He was first searching for me. C.S. Lewis, in his spiritual autobiography called Surprised by Joy, puts it this way. He says, Amiable agnostics will talk cheerfully about a man's search for God. To me, they might as well have talked about a mouse's search for a cat. You know, his point is this a mouse does not search for a cat, the cat searches for a mouse. And as Lewis is, is thinking about his own experience, about his own conversion, he says, Yeah, to me, it felt like I was searching. But I know I could only be searching. I, I, I know that I could only see God because God was first searching for me. He was working in my heart. He was softening my heart. He was helping me to understand first. Now look, if, if you're here and you, you call Jesus your, your Saviour and Lord, can, can you look back on how it is that you've come to that realisation? Can you see the people the conversations the circumstances even sometimes the really hurtful experiences that made you recognize you need Jesus that he is your only hope well maybe you're here today and you're not at that point yet you haven't called Jesus your savior and lord you're still trying to figure out who he is you're here and you're searching don't just search for the reasons for how you turned up here go with Saul to that Damascus road and see with Saul the risen Lord Jesus. Because if, if Jesus really did rise from the dead, then it changes everything. It's the key that unlocks everything and you need to make your life about Him. So, we see the causes for Saul's conversion, it's all, it's all God. But then lastly, the consequences of conversion. Now, earlier we said that all conversion experiences are different. People get to Jesus in in different ways. And yet some Christians, you know, say to themselves, well, how do I know if I'm converted? Because I haven't got a Damascus Road experience. It hasn't been all dramatic and sudden for me. How do I know if I'm converted? Well, the way to answer that question is by looking at the results. In Saul's story we see the consequences of conversion by three commitments. And these are the three commitments that need to be common for every Christian. First, it's the commitment to make Jesus as your king. The Lord uh, appeared to Saul and said to him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for, sorry, he appeared to Tarsus and said this in verse 11, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul for he is praying. Now it's been three days since um, the Lord appeared to Saul and during that time he'd been blinded, he can't see, he hasn't been eating or drinking and he's just been praying and it's, it's not like Paul had never prayed or fasted before. He was, he was a Pharisee. Of course, he'd d- probably done that many times. But this time was different. Because every other time beforehand, it was a ritual. It was spiritual compliance. It was, it was, a, it was, a, it was a moral performance. But now, he was seeking intimacy with God. He, he, he was seeking the presence of Jesus. He was in worship. And this is the first thing about knowing that you have a relationship with Jesus, is that you've had a deep personal encounter with him. This is not a business transaction. This is not merely subscribing to a whole list of theological truths. It's having intimacy with God, a sense of Jesus' presence in your life, that he has touched you and shaped you and changed you. Like Saul, you say to Jesus in your heart, I have been wrong about you. I have been so wrong about you. I've been trying to live my life for myself, but I see that it's all about you because you have done everything for me. Everything in my life has to change. You have to be my king. So it's it's, first of all, this commitment to Jesus as your king, this deep personal encounter. But then secondly, it's a commitment to his people. Did you notice when, when Saul appeared sorry, when Jesus appeared to Saul on that Damascus road, he didn't say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? No, he didn't. What did he say? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? In other words, Jesus so identifies with his people that what you do to them, you do to him. He so identifies with his people because he is present in them. Now think about what that means for a moment. When you get saved and you come into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, you also come into a relationship with God's people. You are not just saved into relationship with Jesus, you are also saved into a relationship with his body, his church, his community, his people. Christians have this deep common bond, we have God's spirit within us, we have Jesus' presence in us. That means commitment to him should also be seen in commitment to his people. It's not okay for you to say, I'm going to be committed to Jesus, but I'm going to sit loosely to his church. I'm going to to follow Jesus, but I'm not going to get involved with Christian things. I'm just going to bide my time and, and pick and choose my involvements. Jesus says, I'm present in every Christian Christian community is the means by which Jesus reaches the world with his gospel. Christian community is the means by which Jesus grows his people in in his likeness and image. We are more important to one another for one another's spiritual growth than you can ever imagine. And when we're selective about involvement and commitment to Christian community, we're actually showing that we're selective about our lordship to Jesus. We're haggling with him. We're negotiating with him. We haven't really understood the demands that he's placing on our lives and the significance of what he's doing through his people and what he could be doing in your life through his people. Your commitment to Jesus is very much seen in your commitment to his people. Thirdly, there's a commitment to service. Um, when Ananias says to God, listen, God, are you, are you, sh- are you sure? You know, Saul is this guy, he's, been, he's the Terminator. He's been trying to track everyone down. He's after me. He's after everyone. God says to him, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Now, in one respect, Saul was unique In this moment, God was commissioning him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. God was using him in a unique way to bring his gospel, so to speak, to the ends of the earth. Saul's situation is unique, but it is also very common. Because every Christian is told to proclaim Jesus' name. Every Christian is called to service. Every Christian is actually called to suffer. Because when you make a commitment to Christ as your King and you make a commitment to His people, that is a commitment to service and often that is hard. It often involves inconveniences, often it's uncomfortable, often it is difficult and sometimes that means suffering. But we are not called into relationship with God. We are not saved by the blood of Jesus in order for us to live a comfortable lifestyle, for us to make Jesus kind of like our divine helper, That he's got to help us to get the agenda that we want in life no we are called into relationship with him to serve and glorify him and sometimes that will involve hardship but we serve because of the one who has first served us we give our everything because of the one who has given everything for us we live lives of grace for the one who has showered us with grace so, so what does it look like to be converted? Well, it's those three commitments. Commitment to, the, to, to your king, commitment to his people, commitment to his service. Here is Saul's story. Very much like Staffordshire, Bill and countless others. Someone who was utterly transformed by Christ. On his way to Damascus to seize Christians, but instead he's seized by Christ. The man who was uttering out murderous threats but instead sings out praise. The one who was determined to crush the church but instead God uses him in a profound way to build his church. The one who was spiritually and literally blind turns into the one who can see. That's Saul's story, a man who was utterly made new by Jesus. Is it your story too? Let's pray. Later on Paul would say to Timothy, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me the worst of sinners Christ Jesus might display his immense patience, as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. And Lord God, we want to commit ourselves once again to you, recognising that we are very much like Saul. We are full of self-righteousness and spiritual pride. We try to earn your favour, recognising, Lord, um, at the same time that we need you. Lord, we deeply need you to work in our hearts to change us and to help us to see the, the, the crucified and risen Jesus, the one who has done everything on our behalf. Help us to make him our, our king. Help us to be committed to him, to his people, to, to his service. And Lord, for those of us here who, who are not yet ready, uh, Lord, would you convict them of their need for a saviour and of the surpassing righteousness of Jesus, the one who has given everything for us. Would you help us all, Lord, to enthrone him as our saviour and our king? We ask all these things in his name. Amen.